Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheet's pharma regulatory podcast. I'm Derek Gingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Sue Sutter, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is January 12th, 2023. Our first podcast of the new year comes on the heels of major news in the Alzheimer's space. Esai and Biogen's Lekembi, which, by the way, is one of the few English words in the, in the English language with a Q and not a U, received an accelerated approval from the FDA on January 6th. Sarah, you were part of the team that looked at looked at this for us. So the FDA gave the drug a narrow indication in Alzheimer's? Well, I guess the company is sort of making the case that it's a narrow indication. I was looking back in some of my old reporting around Aduhelm and when FDA so that drug got a much broader indication that people were expecting and then it was narrowed to be what is essentially very similar to what the Lakembi one was. And I think a lot of people debated whether FDA really narrowed it when they said they did because they sort of put in additional language, but there's still this base language that it's indicated for Alzheimer's patients. So there's still, some people would argue, um, physician discretion. But what um, Isai um, is sort of arguing is that the fact that, you know, there is the labeling to try and really say very specifically, you know, you have to have the plaques, you have to be at, um, you know, you're supposed to be early on in your disease onset to get prescribed the drug, that that sort of helps tip the benefit risk balance um, in a particular way so that they sort of avoided um, potentially, you know, more safety constraints like REMS or stronger warnings or so forth that um, some people might have thought they could have gotten because of, you know, some of the concerns around um, um, ARIA or um, amyloid-related imaging abnormalities, which are, you know, are brain swelling. And then um, also something that has come out a little bit later is um, other concerns with like brain hemorrhages and so forth with the drug. so, you know, the safety labeling, I would say, is probably, you know, it's it doesn't look, um, at least for this accelerated approval, particularly problematic for them, though it is, like, interesting to think about because this was an accelerated approval based on the phase two study and some of the um, safety events, including two deaths that have been reported on recently came from the phase three trial, which FDA didn't actually look at for this um, accelerated approval. Um, there's a little bit of like a nod to it that that very low down in the labeling, but it's not really mentioned. Um, so you would think that some of this is going to change when they you know, try to get a full approval. And if they get a full approval, the labeling may be adjusted and so forth. So would be interesting to see if some of those concerns kind of almost end up coming up higher, being more prominent somehow in the labeling. Because one of the um, um, particular concerns with like these brain hemorrhages and so forth is that patients taking um, like certain types of anticoagulants or antithrombotic medications may be more um, suspect to um, the negative events. Um, And this labeling sort of mentions that, but again, it's pretty buried down on, I think it was like page six, and um, it's certainly not like a contraindication or anything of that nature, um, you know, no black box warning. So we'll see as, it, you know, FDA gets more data, and Sue actually did a story, you know, noting that um, the safety, um, 
the size of the safety database that this um, accelerated approval was based on was like, you know, much was I don't want to not, not necessarily much, but smaller than is typically recommended for this type of treatment. Yeah, so that was one aspect of uh, regulatory flexibility that FDA showed in this approval. Um, it did not, the safety database at six months for six months of exposure did not quite meet the ICH guidelines in that regard. Um, another way in which they uh, flex their, their flexibility is that the primary endpoint for the phase two trial um, was a clinical endpoint and it failed to meet this pre-specified threshold. Um, it was a kind of a complicated analysis. It was actually a Bayesian analysis, which I've been told is not common um, in the drug area for a primary analysis, um, but it was based on a clinical endpoint, a clinical scale, and they did not meet that threshold, but yet FDA went ahead and reviewed the um, data on the surrogate marker, the brain amyloid, reduction in brain amyloid. And um, there was some dissension on the review team with the um, statistical reviewer saying the, the results on the surrogate endpoint really should have been simply exploratory because they're just um, the statistical power was not there since the primary endpoint failed. Um, but that that didn't seem to bother the decision makers at FDA. So they really relied on the um, aducanumab precedent and the fact that they approved that drug on the basis of brain amyloid reduction and in the process of approving lecanemab, um, Patricia, Pat Patricia Cavazzoni, the director of CEDAR, also issued her own kind of all-hands bulletin to CEDAR staff, and uh, which she talked about aducanumab and, and sort of the, the leap in understanding that that drug provided in terms of understanding around the reduction in amyloid plaque and the role that may play in slowing the disease. And she also referenced the uh, recent House report on biogens and FDA's interactions around aduhelm. And um, she mentioned that there's work underway to sort of implement some of the recommendations in that report. But all in all, her email was really a full-throated defense of that very controversial approval, still very controversial approval from a year and a half ago. I guess it's a, should we be surprised that they felt the need to kind of lump Adjuhelm into the Lakembi conversation? I don't think we should be surprised at all. I mean, um, looking at the summary review, they make frequent references to the precedent set by Adjuhelm. Um, I think it's unusual, you know, for the CEDAR director to, to issue an all-hands email announcing a drug approval and kind of going back to revisit the the um, precedent setting approval from a year and a half earlier. Well, we've certainly seen that in other uh, controversial areas, uh, you know, the uh, uh, the Duchesne's uh, mustard justify uh, approvals, you know, sort of the, the first one was sort of kind of highly controversial, but sort of once that uh, standard was set, the uh, precedent got used for uh, um, uh, at least well, one subsequent product that I can remember. And, uh, um, you know, there was sort of kind of there's less outrage each uh, um, each time. Lequimby obviously has for kind of more clinical data um, behind it than uh, um, 
Adam Helm uh, had, but uh, um, you know, the next big regulatory decision for the product is going to be sort of what CMS uh, does uh, under their uh, coverage with evidence development uh, policy. Uh, 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 Biogen and um, ASI basically aren't going to get uh, reimbursed while it's still under accelerated approval, but they've already filed for full approval. They did that the same day they got accelerated approval, so that should be uh, um, coming in a matter of months. And uh, although there are some sort of kind of uh, safety questions with that uh, um, uh, data set, it seems like it's uh, um, uh, certainly on track to get approval from uh, everything we've seen. And then uh, um, both the sponsors and uh, CMS are going to be faced with a uh, a big question. Uh, um, once it gets full approval, what does the you know criteria for evidence development uh, um, mean? You know, sort of how robust a registry does uh, um, uh, does ASI have to run to get uh, Medicare reimbursement? And then also, uh, you know, could they get a uh, a change in policy for the product? Could they? Uh, Get CMS to actually waive the coverage evidence development uh, requirements based on this, you know, this phase three evidence that they now have at hand, and uh, um, those will be, uh, um, you know, issues that they'll be working on uh, heavily over the coming months. And uh, you know, I wouldn't expect to see much in the way of sales uh, for this product, uh, um, you know, for uh, um, you know the first many months. But uh, depending on what CMS ends up doing with it, it could uh, um, it could really uh, um, have considerable sales in, uh, in Medicare after that. Yeah, that was one of the things I was thinking about was, you know, how are how are prescribers going to use this drug? I mean, we've already seen Adjuhelm is kind of really didn't get much traction hardly at all. I mean, it's, you know, the second one in line going to be the one that kind of where the where the dam kind of breaks, so to speak. And, and you know, physicians start, you know, have, have some confidence in it. I, I mean, well, it, I think like as Max, bleh, Matt was sort of explaining, um, I mean, the dam really probably is not going to break until full approval um, because of the way the CMS decision was set up. Um, like with Aduhum, when it's under accelerated approval, you have to be in a clinical trial. My understanding is there actually really aren't any trials at this point for people to enroll in for Lakembi that they could, you know, get the coverage. So, I mean, I, I suppose there are maybe a few people, you know, um, that might qualify for the drug who are, you know, too young to be on Medicare potentially, or, you know, some people might pay for it out of pocket. But I think, um, you know, they're going to really have to wait to get use. And then, um, you know, we'll sort of see, I think, Again, I think that's where like the safety profile and sort of the benefits as, as the more information we get about the benefits of the drug over time could really be important. Um, I was listening to one of Robert Califf, the FDA commissioner's talks at um, JP Morgan the other day, and he seemed to suggest that, you know, he was hopeful that like the longer people are on these kind of drugs, the more you'll sort of see the benefit in patients and the separation from placebo. Um, so he was optimistic that, you know, there's more promise there than some people are seeing now from the, you know, magnitude of the benefit seen in the phase three trial in terms of how clinically meaningful the 0.45, you know, of and that 18 point scale improvement is. So I think it's really hard to know. I think certainly people are much more optimistic about this one than Aduhelm, but it's probably on a scale. I mean, even, um, you know, some of the sp sponsors working on Alzheimer's have sort of said, and now I'm 
because this was in December, seems like a long time ago. If I'm blanking, if it was Regeneron or Lily who at another meeting was kind of saying, you know, these are who are kind of setting realistic expectations. These are sort of the first first group of therapies. You know, these are not the cures and it's going to be other things down the line that really get us there. So I think you also have to think about these therapies in that regard. They like hopefully will make a meaningful difference in some people's lives, but these are not maybe going to be the the really big transformations. I'm just pulling up your story now, Sarah, and that was uh, uh, Lily. And it's uh, always a good thing for a uh, a company that's sort of kind of uh, um, uh, you know behind in a uh, one of these. Uh, Therapeutic area foot races to talk about sort of how it's the the later products that are really going to be the game changers. (laughs) So uh, um, we'll see how that goes for them. But uh, but yeah, that's a good point. That's we're kind of obviously sort of uh, um, you know the uh, the first statin isn't the one that everyone thinks of as for kind of the um, you know the uh, the the super uh, the super statin. It was the uh, it was Lipitor. So uh, um, who knows what the uh, what the amyloid. uh, Version of Lipitor will 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 be, and uh, obviously there's sort of more development to come. And uh, uh, monoclonal antibodies, uh, you know, might not be the uh, um, might not be the be all end all of, uh, of sort of kind of how to treat uh, to treat the disease, even 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 if there are more of those to come. So. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting, and uh, you know, there's 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 certainly a lot more to come with this product, and we're gonna you know more developments down the road, both near term and long term. So yeah, it'll be this will be this will be a fun one to um, you know to follow going forward. Next up, we return to Medicare. CMS announced the timeline for its price negotiation program. The agency said that it would seek public comment on guidance and some information requests as it implements the price negotiation process that was included in the Inflation Reduction Act. In September, CMS must publish its initial list of 10 Part D drugs selected for negotiation, but the initial guidance will have a 30-day comment period in the spring with a final version released in the summer. Several information requests also are projected covering exemptions for covering exemptions from negotiations, negotiation data elements, and offer counteroffer exchanges. The information collection requests will carry a 60-day comment period. And after the comment periods, CMS will publish a notice with a 30-day comment period as the information collection request is sent to the Office of Management and Budget for review and approval. Now there's going to be a test on which ones are 60 days and which ones are 30. So for the panel, are the, what are the key dates here? I know, you know, our story had a really long timeline and it, it you know, and I'm just barely scratching the surface, but what, what are the, where are the key dates, you know, f- for you, for you as we, you know, kind of see how CMS kind of implements this? Well, one of my key takeaways is CMS is not trying to be antagonistic with industry under the statute. They don't have to do any of this stuff in terms of sort of kind of the, um, you know the uh, notice and comment uh, stuff. Sort of the uh, the process is exempted from that sort of uh, um, formal rulemaking uh, procedure. But they've they've opted to get uh, public input. Uh, you know, uh, nonetheless, in the um, you know, in sort of how they set up the um, the program, and uh, you know, uh, um, to the extent that that uh, allows industry to uh, um, influence what's going on, it's a it's a good thing for sponsors. So uh, that's uh, um, that was my key takeaway from uh, from the announcement. I mean, to, to me, the the key were some of the really big dates, you know, come further down the line in terms of next September um, 2023, when they published the list of the first, you know, drugs selected. And then, um, you know, you have basically a, a year or so from there, 
until, you know, for all the negotiating and stuff to take place. So for the people involved in that, there's going to be a bunch of interim dates. But then in September 2024, you get those maximum fair price lists. So that'll be, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of attention on that because this is going to be the first time, you know, the, the U.S. kind of goes through this sort of process. Um, so everybody's going to want to know, you know, I guess, you know, you might be able to figure out to some extent the likely candidates for the list, but then there's, you know, some ways in which you can't 100% predict. And then, of course, like, you know, not going to know what's exactly going on in the backroom negotiations. So to see where those prices actually shake out, I think it's going to be important. Yeah, I was looking at February 1st, 2024, which is the date the first offers are sent. And I'm wondering if those are going to, you know, they might be required to be private, but we all know in Washington, stuff just gets out anyway so you're wondering i'm wondering if you know the the first offers get you know some of them get leaked and you know in part to you know pressure cms that they either did it wrong or overshot it or you know or trying to undercut the company or you know you could make up whatever reason you want probably for why he someone would leak something like that but uh you know I'm, I'm curious to see you know if if how quickly we learn how kind of how how these this back and forth goes yeah that's a good question and um i don't know it'd be interesting to figure out i guess right like what can what will be what is the public entitled to you know know about how yeah, this process yeah. goes out what information will be available to journalists will you be able to FOIA anything as you know you know we get well, we have run up into a lot of the hurdles you know you run into with covering some of the stuff at fda will everything be sort of um classified as uh what's the the foia terminology where we don't get access it's um a commercial industry. confidential in yes information right yeah, is everything basically going to be classified as that and then you know for the public and for the congress too you know and the lawmakers who sort of um have to do their oversight in that way of is cms carrying out the law they the way you want it to you know can you actually get a sense of whether you know they're doing this properly if everything is sort of private so i think that'll be my, interesting my guess is uh, sorry to cut you off there uh, sarah no, my, go ahead. my guess is uh my guess is that uh um you know they're going to at least have some justification if not for kind of a uh you know a complete uh spreadsheet with uh, the various uh, formulas that they used but uh um, you know, they want this process to go well. They know there's kind of a bullseye on them with the new Republican Congress. And, uh, you know, this is an indication that they they don't want to uh, antagonize anybody, uh, um, you know, on the industry side. You know, uh, while on the other hand, they're also just going to do what uh, uh, what they've been instructed to do by the legislation. And uh, they're going to, uh, you know, essentially, um, you know, uh, set these prices uh, um, and, you uh, you know, see what uh, what industry thinks about them. Um, so, uh, as much as it's a negotiation, I think it's more just sort of kind of a uh, um, an uh, internal evaluation process. But I think they will sort of kind of uh, uh, discuss for kind of how they came to those uh, um, those terms, and uh, um, to the extent that they sort of kind of uh, offer some insights, it'll help uh, you know companies perhaps uh, with their own uh, um, uh, price setting uh, as the uh, um, as this goes forward and uh, new products launch. It's not going to be like a bunch of people in a conference room, you know, where like, you know, you think of in a movie where like they're on opposite sides and they're saying, I want this. No, you don't. And they're kind of arguing back and forth to come up with a, a solution. Right. It's paper going back and forth. That's what it sounds like to me. 
I, I guess the, I can see the, the, the silence the, the that silence, we don't silence, really no, quite know. I mean, it's probably <laughs> a combination of both, I would think. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm not sure from the uh, the timeline whether there's actually an opportunity for the, um, you know, a sponsor to meet face to face with uh, um, with CMS on this. Uh, um, you know, I, I think uh, sort of the uh, their openness to a public process here suggests that they probably, uh, um, you know, will grant that opportunity, but they're also not going to slow down at all. They're going to meet all their statutory deadlines and uh, um, not get held up by, uh, um, you know, uh, rulemaking, um, as I mentioned before, or through kind of, uh, you know, company efforts to drag their feet on a particular uh, um, particular product. So. Derek, another thing, you know, you mentioned like key dates and another thing that I guess people have brought up um, with the way this timeline is constructed is, you know, September 2024 puts these um, prices being published very close to, um, you know, one of the next big major, you know, national elections in the U.S. And so people have just felt like, you know, there's political ramifications of that for that election season. Yeah, that'll be interesting when that comes out. If you know, if it becomes a how it's used in the you know, in particularly the presidential election, and you know, how both sides, both candidates, or three, however many candidates we end up with, um, you know, use that to to their advantage. Um, but uh, you know, it it'll be it'll be fun. This is the first you know. The, now that we're kind of seeing how it's going to work, you know, the first information collect collection requests are going to be coming out pretty soon, and that'll be interesting. So it'll be it'll be fun to watch and how kind of how how industry responds to all the all these things. Finally, we're going to revisit the departure of Dan Leonard as CEO of the Association for Accessible Medicines. We talked to several former AAM employees who worked with him at the organization who described some of the issues that he ran into there. It appears his hands-off approach to management did not go over well. Um, some questioned why he never learned the details of the generics business and never never testified on Capitol Hill at a hearing. But at the same time, people also said the AAM board of directors need to take some responsibility as well as do a better job overseeing the organization. Um, apparently, the board was not quick to deal with some of the issues that had emerged um, when they were raised. Um, and at the same time, though, people who worked with Leonard at other places said that they enjoyed working with him and found him knowledgeable and engaged. Um, so it's kind of a this kind of becomes a uh, I don't even want to know how to describe this describe the situation. Um, Matt, you followed this group for a long time. Were you surprised that issues like this kind of emerged and caused him to you know to to leave the post? Uh, you know, I guess yes and no. Uh, as you. Uh said in your uh, your masterful story i think the best way to describe it is uh, quote a bad fit you know it's just uh, not uh, um not everyone everyone works out in every job and this was perhaps uh, um a mismatch in terms of sort of kind of uh, um philosophy and uh, um approach between the uh, the association and its uh, um and its head um you know uh, um the generous association uh, was you know one of the newer associations in uh, in DC by uh, uh, biopharma standards, uh, both the uh, pharma and uh, bio of, uh, uh, were much more uh, longstanding and uh, um, the generic association AAM, uh, you know, uh, back until about uh, five years ago, I guess, uh, uh, GPHA, they were formed in uh, 2020. There used to be sort of three um, uh, smaller generic associations representing sort of different kinds of uh, generic companies. And I think sort of kind of in that, 
um, formations where kind of see the seeds of some of the tension that uh, um, Dan Leonard had to deal with and that the um, the board had to deal with uh, uh, going forward. You know, there are, you know, now huge uh, generic uh, conglomerates, I guess for lack of a better word, that sort of kind of, you know, have uh, brand revenue as well and, uh, you know, are, uh, um, you know, uh, massive ongoing uh, um, operations. You've got, uh, um, you know, smaller uh, um, uh, startups, again, sort of kind of uh, not sort of how you perhaps are traditionally use that word, but sort of kind of, you know, have a few products and are, uh, um, you know, sort of trying to sort of get, uh, get, um, uh, get an entry into the uh, into the market. And then you have uh, um, companies that, uh, you know, support, uh, um, you know, support the, uh, the 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 sellers of uh, generic drugs you know they, uh, that the contract manufacturers and the uh, the contract uh, um, uh, um, researchers that sort of kind of do the um, do the testing is sort of kind of they're all part of uh, um, you know the uh, the generic ecosystem and sort of kind of uh, um, you know uh, AM uh, represents them all to a uh, um, to a certain extent and sort of kind of how that uh, um, how that all can mesh and sort of kind of what they all uh, want in terms of sort of kind of uh, advocacy at FDA on, on Capitol Hill, it's uh, it's hard to uh, to balance all those uh, um, concerns. Uh, you know, the um, the generic uh, industry is, uh, um, uh, you know, often, you know, seen as for kind of the uh, um, the, the 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 smaller uh, um, scrappier um, rival to uh, to pharma and, uh, you know, as pharma would get its way on the uh, um, on the hill, and uh, the generic industry gets the um, uh, gets the scraps. Although uh, this year, obviously, they both uh, suffered a big loss with the uh, IRA. That uh, um, both uh, uh, brand and generic firms think that the Medicare price negotiations is bad for their business models, and uh, they're going to have to sort of kind of uh, handle that uh, um, going forward. But uh, um, uh, Derek, what else did you find in your reporting on this uh, um, this story that might be? Uh, um, uh, you know something that the uh, the board or uh, um, you know the generic industry needs to think about uh, going forward as they think about uh, who who might lead the association uh, next. Well, yeah, that was one of the things we you know we were talking to people about, and you know I, I said you know would a former or a current generic company CEO be a good fit here because you don't have to worry about the business you know person understanding the business side and. You know, the answer I got was maybe, um, you know, I, I guess in in one sense, a CEO under or a business, a, a generic CEO understands, you know, kind of the business model and is can communicate that on Capitol Hill, which is what, you know, one of the things that um, AAM and GPA, when it was GPHA had, you know, they were trying desperately to do um you know, especially given that 90% of prescriptions are generic. Um, and, you know, but at the, at the same time, the, you know, in the business world, you're thinking quarter by quarter and in the advocacy world where AAM operates, you're thinking a lot longer term in term in, in, you know, when you're trying to, you know, to get legislation passed and, and get policy changed and, and so forth. I mean, you know, one example is the Creates Act, which I mean, the generics industry begged for that for what seven years before it was finally passed. It was in legislation and it got taken out, and then it was, you know, then it was proposed, introduced as a standalone bill, hoping to get attached to something, you know, for years before it finally got into an appropriations bill of all places. 
So, you know, and that and that's considered a win for them. You know, so so yeah, a, they're going to have they have a really important decision. Um, you know, the board has a really important decision to make coming up because this next pick is going to be key. Um, you know, it's going it's going to and you know have some you know. Um, you know, it's going to have to deal with some some big issues, especially like we just talked about with price negotiation uh, on the horizon and and the impact on the generic industry. Yeah, they've had more CEOs over their uh, um, 22 uh, years of existence than uh, Bio or Pharma have. They've you know tried to find a different model, sort of you know a, a communication specialist like uh, Dan Leonard, who kind of more. Uh, um, you know, lobbying focused uh, um, approach like uh, um, Chip Davis, some more, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, technical uh, um, regulatory savvy like uh, Kathleen Yeager. And they've all, uh, you know, had uh, their various uh, successes and shortcomings. So I don't think there's, uh, you know, sort of, kind of one, uh, um, you know, perfect uh, messiah that uh, um, that uh, um, AAM can pick to sort of, kind of solve all the industry's problems, but it will be sort of uh, um, curious to see sort of what direction they uh, they go in and uh, you know what that what that does for them uh, going forward. Yeah, David Goff is now is their interim CEO now. He's been around. Um, he's been over there for a while. Um, I think about ten years now. So um, he's very familiar with the staff and the members and so forth. So um, you know the people we talked to were very were happy that he was were he that he was picked. So. Um, yeah, but yeah, like I said, the next choice will be, uh, you know, be interesting to watch as they, as they go through the search process. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Sue Sutter, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.